I am tremendously honored and pleased to be speaking today on the morning show with Simon Winchester, the highly regarded author of a number of different bestsellers, most recently a book called The Meaning of Everything, The Story of the Oxford English Dictionary. This book is published by Oxford University Press, and it tells the story not only of the, uh, the creation of the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, uh, a dictionary like no other, but also gives us a, a fascinating insight into, first of all, the development of the English language and, uh, and a really <laughs> interesting and sometimes chaotic development it has been over the centuries, but also the, the very notion of gathering words together into a dictionary, something which uh, did not occur for a long, long time. Uh, for the English language, and we'll explore some of that as well, but primarily the fascinating story of how this particular dictionary was assembled, a dictionary which sought to uh, embody, encompass the entire English language. Simon Winchester's previous works include The Professor and the Madman, which uh, focused on, on one small and fascinating story within this, this larger story about uh, the dictionary. Uh, he has uh, written for a number of magazines like Smithsonian and National Geographic, a foreign correspondent for The Guardian and The Sunday Times at, at different points. He now lives in Scotland, and we are pleased that he can join us today for this portion of the morning show. Simon Winchester, we welcome you to the program. Well, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I would love to know, first of all, uh, when you wrote this, the story, uh, the, the book, The Professor and the Madman, how did you encounter that particular story, uh, which uh, is kind of a, 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 a sidelight in this story of the Oxford English Dictionary? Well, it was a little bizarre. I was actually writing a completely different book on a completely alien topic on I'm going to buy a tramp steamer and sail around the world in it for a couple of years with a crew of six friends of mine and uh, write a book about the sea and um, one day my editor in New York um, had me to lunch to talk about the progress of this book and at the end of lunch she said um, these are the books that I'm publishing this year take anyone you know just to take home and read and for some extraordinary reason, I selected a book by a man called Jonathan Green, who I knew vaguely, called Chasing the Sun, Dictionaries and the Men Who Made Them. And I took it home, and the following morning, I was reading it in the bath in my house in upstate New York. And there was a footnote which said, readers of this book will, of course, be familiar with the story of W.C. Minor, the deranged American lunatic murderer, who was such a prolific contributor to the Oxford English Dictionary. And I sat bolt upright in the bath, rather like Archimedes, and saying, God, that's an amazing story. I've never heard of that. Murderer, madman, contributing to the OED. And I called the only lexicographer friend I had in Oxford. I happened to have the telephone by the bath. I happened to remember her number. And I said, Elizabeth, do you know about this chap, W.C. Minor? And she said, yes, I do. I probably know more about him than anyone in the world, because about a decade ago I wrote an academic paper about him. And um, he was in a lunatic asylum for 40 years. And when I was doing the research, she said, I saw the seven linear feet of papers relating to him, but I was never allowed to look in them because they were secret. But that was many years ago. Perhaps they're no longer secret, Simon. And if you manage to get to have a look at them, I warrant there's a rather good story. <laughs> And so I did get permission to look at them, and there indeed was a rather good story. A remarkable book resulted, and uh, 
And I suspect that helped fuel your interest in the Oxford English Dictionary and maybe laid the groundwork for this particular project. It did, although I think the other way around slightly, the reason I chose the Jonathan Green book about dictionaries is because I'd always had a fairly good collection of dictionaries. And indeed, when I lived in Hong Kong, had got for a knockdown price a copy of the OED itself. And so I'd, it was in those days, 17 volumes. It's now 20. Um, but I had, I remember getting, picking them up during a typhoon, a huge rainstorm, and loading them into the trunk of a taxi, dripping with rain. But I got them for such a steal, and I still have the, the copy I still use today, very well thumbed. But uh, I, I was fascinated with dictionaries for a long time. I'd like to begin uh, the, 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 the meat of our interview uh, by talking, uh, as you begin talking in your book, about the English language itself, which you call, in its essence, the language of invasion, which is one of the reasons why it is a particularly interesting language. Uh, explain your, your choice of terms there. Yes, well, England and British Isles being an island was essentially populated from outside by a variety of peoples. You initially had the Celts living there who came from somewhere near the Danube, we think. And they had a language that we're talking now in, in maybe 500, 800 BC. And they had their own language, and there are one or two words, um, somewhat uh, little known today, but used. For instance, the word tor, T-O-R, the word cum, C-W-M. Tor means the mountain, cum means the valley. And oddly enough, the word cum has been bandied around quite a lot this year because this has been the 50th anniversary of the climbing, successful climbing of Mount Everest. And one of the valleys that you have to go up to get to the final summit ridge is called the Western Coombe, named by presumably an English person. Um, but that uses a word which is very, very ancient, a Celtic word. Well, then the Romans came in, as um, every English schoolboy knows, and they imprinted on top of the Celtic some of their own language. Well, they in due course went away, leaving behind a sort of mixture of Celtic and Roman. And then came a, a succession of very, very powerful invasions of the British Isles from, from what is now Denmark, Jutland, um, who brought in the language of, if you like, the language of Chaucer, of early English, which um, remained, I mean, all the early English terms, Beowulf and leading right up to the Canterbury Tales, employer language, which is now a mixture of Frisian, high, Old High German, Roman, Celtic, a language which people like George Orwell still think of as being the pure essence of, of English. All those four-letter words which we talk about are all, you know, although they're impure words, one might say, they all are very, very old words from this period. Then imprinted upon those, this great sort of melange, is um, what happened in 1066, another date well known to school children, which is when the Norman French arrived, when um, uh, the Battle of Hastings, which we lost, of course, took place, bringing the French in to rule the Norman French. And that imparted another enormous number of words upon us. So layer by layer by layer, what we now call English is a very rich and complicated language, but all, as I say in the introduction, the language of invasion, because we were this little 
rocky, foggy, windswept island off the northwest coast of, of, of Europe, prime for invasion. And the invaders brought not just military power and Roman roads and food and crops and so forth, but they also brought in abundance their languages. So you're really setting English aside as being uh, quite remarkable in this respect. In other words, it is it is not at all typical for a language to grow in this way or to s- such an extent as, as occurred with English. Not at all. And, and as I'm talking to you, come to think of it, the English language is a bit like the United States of America. It is very much a pluribus unum. I mean, out of many tongues, in the case of the English language, we produce one, as you produce out of many nations, one nation. Um, other languages, like German, French, Italian, those three specifically, are essentially pure. I mean, they have grown up intrinsically from the people that live in Germany, live in France, or live in Italy, which is one of the reasons that, specifically in the case of France and Italy, the, the, the people who oversee the language guard its purity very jealously. And you've got a committee in France, very old, it's about 400 years old, um, 40 immortals, they're called rather derisively, 40 ancient men who guard France from any barbarism like Le Weekend and The Sandwich and The Nightclub. And similarly with um, a Florence-based organization which looks after the purity of the Italian language. What critics of those languages, or rather chauvinists like me who are proponents of the English language would argue, is that those languages, because they're not allowed to grow and develop and change, remain static and ultimately not as useful as they might be. English, which we have no one superintending our language, no one says this is how a word must be used and only like this. The language twists and turns over the years and the centuries. Words change their meaning, slip in and out of favor. The language is incredibly flexible. And that, together with the enormous word stock, which was gifted to us by all these various people that invaded England, um, leads to a language which is rich in vocabulary, rich in nuance, and amazingly flexible. And that's why I think it's become the world language, like you and I are speaking in it. You say at one point, words from every corner of the globalized world cascade in ceaselessly, daily topping up a language that is self-evidently living, breathing, changing, evolving, as no other language ever has, nor is ever likely to. Well, some critics will say I go a bit over the top in my enthusiasm for English. I mean, I'm very, very fond of the language. And yes, every day, I mean, good Lord, igloo, ketchup, amok. I mean, I could, if I had the book in front of me, I could read a long list of words which have come in in the last 20 or 30 years from from foreign parts. Um, and, of course, look at what's happening with you know the technological uh, developments all being put, first of all, into English beyond any other language. They're then translated backwards into French and Italian and Chinese. We have a word like telephone, for instance, which, oddly enough, was not invented by Alexander Graham Bell, but it was invented, it was another word for megaphone. Uh, It's a a voice-driven apparatus for sending your voice a long distance. And the thing that Alexander Graham Bell invented, he called the electric telephone. Um, but nonetheless, that word is firmly in our in our um, language now. The Chinese translated as, I think, dinwa, which is long-distance electric speaking. So it happens in English first, thanks to, in that particular case, 
Greek telos for distance, bone, sound. Um, but yes, all these foreign languages, whether ancient or modern, provide the basis for this language of ours. We're speaking with Simon Winchester, author of The Meaning of Everything, the story of the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, in a portion of this opening chapter called The Measuring, you say that until the very beginning of the 17th century, a time when the English language could quite probably number fully a quarter of a million words and phrases, there was not a single book in existence that attempted to list even a small fraction of them. There was no dictionary at that point in time. You said no one had, had ever bothered. I know. It, it, it struck me when I was writing The Professor and the Madman how extraordinary that is. We had this amazingly rich language, and no one ever bothered to corral all the words or even a portion of them, and put them between the hard covers until 1604, when a school teacher called Robert Cordry decided, and this was the time when people were wearing incredibly fancy clothing and wigs and uh, indulging in all sorts of very ostentatious mannerisms and affectations, their language was part of that. They used an extremely high-flown form of English, with very, very complicated words, words which mercifully have gone out of common currency, words like bulbulcitate and arch cremation and things like that. And this man, Cordry, thought he would provide a sort of vade mecum, a guide, for people that wanted to perform well in society and might usefully have a little book, which they'd keep in their pocket, which would list all these words and where it was appropriate to use them. He called them hard words. So he made a list of about 2,000 of them. And this book sold like hotcakes, and it suggested to other people that were looking for a way of making a bit of money that they also might make lists of words. And so come 1650, 1660, there were lists of birds and lists of types of clothing and pieces of furniture, and gradually compendiums, little pocket-sized volumes, essentially listing words, and usually in alphabetical order, not, not always, but usually, were produced, and they became so enormously popular that it eventually impelled this remarkable man, one of the great heroes, I think, in English history, Samuel Johnson, to sit down and produce not just a list of hard words or a list of specialized words, like for ornithology or biology or furniture making, but a list of all words. And so with six colleagues, or five colleagues and himself making a team of six, working just south of Fleet Street in London in a garret, taking six years to do it, they produced the first real dictionary, which came out in 1757, Johnson's Dictionary. Two volumes, 40,000 words, very, very eccentric in its definitions. It's very sort of political, and one of the classics is um, his definition of the word oats, O-A-T-S, which is a grain commonly given to horses, but which in Scotland feeds the people. <laughs> so it was a bit sort of odd. You don't want to actually give your child that definition before he goes to school in the morning. <laughs> and what? that existed essentially. It was the dictionary. If anyone said, go and look it up in the dictionary in sort of 1830 or 1840, that was Samuel Johnson's dictionary. You, you mentioned in talking about that dictionary that uh, uh, in keeping with the whole manner in which English was developing, that this dictionary was... Uh, entirely descriptive and not prescriptive, which touches on an issue we were discussing earlier. That's a very, very important shift. I mean, going back to Cordry and those people, they said this word 
means that. This is how this word should be used. Samuel Johnson, who at first thought that's how he ought to make a dictionary, after about a couple of years of working on it, thought, no, the way to use this dictionary is to listen to how people make use words and derive the definition from that. And he devised this scheme, which is the basis of the Oxford English Dictionary, which is that you listen to or collect samples of everything that's ever been said or spoken or most properly written down. And from that evidence, you see how words have been used. This basis, which the Oxford people call historical principles, is now the basis of most dictionary making. In other words, it describes how the language is used rather than, as you rightly say, rather than prescribed. Prescriptive dictionaries are, in my view, useless and arrogant. How, how dare anyone tell me how I must use a word? How much more constructive to listen to people and see how words are used? And I think you mentioned it uh, more than once in the book that that it was a way of, in a sense, constructing a biography for each of these words. Where and when was it born, and how did it develop and grow in terms of different meanings and so on? You're absolutely right. And and, and Samuel Johnson's dictionary, which was enormously popular, had many shortcomings, one of them being that it's his definitions were eccentric, as I mentioned, some of them incredibly complicated, impossible to understand. But also, although he did derive his definitions from the way he perceived people using the words, he never really annotated each of his entries in such a way as to give you the biography of the word. And this is the big difference that came along when Oxford got into dictionary making. When the first editors of the Oxford Dictionary sat down, They looked at a word like ant, A-N-T, the insect, although it means many other things as well. And they looked very hard to see when the word ant was first used. And so you'll see, I I don't have the dictionary in front of me, but it was probably about 1400. And so you're able to say that the word was born, quite literally, at least born in print. You don't know, of course, didn't have tape recorders around you, didn't know when people were actually first describing this little six-legged, red, annoying thing as an ant, but um, at least in they know when it first appeared in print, and for every single one of the, what is it, 414,000 words that were defined in the first edition of the OED, there is, as you rightly say, its biography. You know when it was born, you know how its spelling changed over the centuries, you know how its meaning changed over the centuries. I mean, when did we start using the word ant to mean something small, you know, and an ant-like creature or something he was only an ant or um, the ship, the twists and turns and the subtleties come out when you look at the biography of every word and to me, just picking up the OED and opening it to any page is, is to be totally enthralled by reading dozens and dozens of little biographies of words that are either rare or common that we use every day or use only infrequently it's fascinating, if you like biography you'll love the dictionary hmm. You mentioned the fact that the, the, the Johnson Dictionary that we've mentioned uh, quickly became enormously popular. When people asked for the dictionary, they meant the Johnson. I mean, just like you'd asked for a copy of the Bible or the Book of Common Prayer or whatever. Uh, but that then eventually in its wake came all kinds of other dictionaries, larger and larger dictionaries, the American Dictionary of Noah Webster being uh, among uh, the most notable. But at some point... 
somebody realized that none of these dictionaries, as impressive as they were, was really good enough, comprehensive enough to really encompass uh, the, the English language in all of its remarkable detail. Tell us about the speech that was given that helped really spark interest in a new kind of dictionary. Yes, that was almost exactly a century after Johnson's Dictionary was published. So we're talking about the 1850s. November the 5th, a foggy day in London, when a man who was the Bishop of Westminster went on to be Archbishop of Dublin, uh, Richard Shenevick's Trench, he was called, stood up before a meeting of a newly formed society called the Philological Society. He stood up in the London Library, which is a private library which still exists in um, the northwest corner of St. James's Square, to deliver a paper. It was a change of program. They were going to do something different. But he said, no, I want to make a two-part speech. And I'm going to call it On Some Deficiencies in Our English Dictionary. And before this small group of, has to be said, all men of the Philological Society, he said, look, we've got Webster, we've got Richardson, we've got Johnson. We've got lots and lots of dictionaries, but all of them have shortcomings. All of them, the, diction, the definitions aren't good enough. None of them truly describe what you and I have just been talking about, the biography of each word. There's no standardized spelling, no standardized pronunciation. And, perhaps most importantly of all, I don't think, he said, I don't think they encompass the totality of the language. Johnson's Dictionary had 40,000 words. Webster maybe five times as many. Webster was a very, very big dictionary. But even so, said Chenevix Trench, I just have this feeling that this language that we're using all sort of permeates everything, like the very air we breathe, is much, much bigger than these dictionary makers have attempted to put between their hardcovers. Why don't we gird up our loins? We're Victorians, after all. We can do anything. We can, you know, we have this amazing self-confidence and cockiness and arrogance, let us agree here and now that we, you at the Philological Society, we decide we're going to get the entirety of the English language, however big it might be, and put all of it between hardcovers. I think he said it'll take us perhaps 10 years to do it, a massive project. It may fill four volumes of books, at least double the size of Samuel Johnson's two-volume work. Don't you agree that this is what we ought to do? And they all went out into the fog and said, oh, it's a jolly good idea. Then the second meeting, you said, if we're really going to do this, what we really need is a huge army of volunteers to read all the books that have ever been written so that we know when the first appearance of every word occurred and how the meaning of these words changed uh, subtly or dramatically over the centuries. So that was really the key to it all, not only the will to do it, but also the decision to employ an army of volunteers, which have always, right up to the present day, been the key to the success of this great dictionary. I love uh, how you quote the, the words of, 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 uh, of Trench himself saying, an entire army would join hand in hand till it covered the breadth of the island. This drawing a sweep net over the whole extent of English literature is that which we would fain see. They did speak wonderfully in those days, did they not? But of course, <laughs> this great army went far beyond those islands. It was hugely um, evident in America. It was a huge American reading program, as indeed there still is today. Every corner of the English-speaking world, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand, India, there were volunteers 
from almost every corner of the globe. We're speaking with Simon Winchester, author of The Meaning of Everything, the story of the Oxford English Dictionary. Uh, there was enthusiasm as the project launched, but you, you uh, talk about how the earliest years uh, following that, that meeting in 1860 uh, were fraught with all kinds of frustrations and, and disappointments. And uh, at, at any number of points uh, at, in, in that early history, this project uh, could have died a very early death. Well, for all sorts of reasons, they woefully miscalculated how long it was all going to take. And indeed, they had no idea how large the English language was. They were pushing on through an untrodden forest where no man's axe has been before, one of them said. The first editor that was appointed by the Philological Society, Herbert Coleridge, related to the poet Coleridge, he died after only a year. But he had got the beginnings of it. He invented the structure. And then this irascible, skirt-chasing, womanizer, brilliant lexicographer, obsessive, fanatically interested in rowing and sculling, Frederick Furnival. He took over. He's one of the most remarkable men. I love Bernie, as he was known. He was a tremendous flirt, a sort of classic dirty old man who married his maid, divorced her, married a woman that was nearly 40 years younger than himself, secondly, outraged Victorian society, and was a brilliant philologist and lexicographer, but a complete shambles in terms of his personal organization. And when he was eventually displaced, the slips, these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of little sheets of paper on which these volunteers had written where a word appeared in a book and how the sentence uh, in which the word appeared, what it looked like, these slips, which amounted to many tons of material, under Furnival's supervision, they sort of disappeared. A few were found in a attic, some more in a basement, some were found in a baby's basket, there were, some were found in Italy, some were found using for spills for lighting fires in County Clare in southwest Ireland. So by the time the great editor, James Murray, who took over in the 1880s, when he started to grapple with the project, he found the structure was in place, thanks to Herbert Coleridge, but Furnival, for all his brilliance, for all his lovability, had nearly wrecked everything by allowing this great resource, these thousands of slips of paper, to be frittered away all over the country. And the first thing Murray had to do was to get them back into one place, start assembling them, using his great army of children. He had 11 children, all <laughs> told. He paid them sixpence a week to organize the slips in alphabetical order, and then they got going. Uh, give us a little insight on, into these volunteer readers, the kind of, of information that they were writing on these thousands and thousands of, of slips of, of paper. Uh, what, what would be a typical assignment given to one of these volunteer readers, and, and uh, what would be the end result of their efforts? Well, for instance, I mean, the, I, I love this couple. There's a couple of women, the Thompson sisters, who contributed from their, I think they were spinsters living together. Um, they contributed to every single volume of the dictionary from, the 1870s right up to 1928 when it was finally published they were one of the words i remember noticing that they were charged with was the word gate g-a-i-t the gate of a horse and not only did they research it and look everywhere for the first appearance of the word gate which would be in something the 14th 15th century but they would draw beautiful little diagrams showing that for instance a normal horse has four gates so walk canter 
or trot, canter, and gallop, whereas an Icelandic horse, anyone that knows about horses will understand this immediately, has a fifth gait between canter and gallop, and they would draw little diagrams to show where the horse's feet would fall in this fifth Icelandic gait. This is the kind of detail that you find when you look in goes to the Oxford English Dictionary archives in Oxford, which are all meticulously kept, and find this stuff. J.R.R. Tolkien, who will obviously be familiar to everyone from having been the author of The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, incidentally the word Hobbit he invented, and it appears in the OED, of course. He was a a first a volunteer and then an assistant, charged with looking at words which began with W.A. And I found a notebook of his in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, um, showing him puzzling in beautiful, beautiful copperplate handwriting, over the best possible definition of an actually really rather complicated word, the word walrus. <laughs> so there we have Tolkien on walrus. We have the Thompson twins writing about gates of horses. Believe you me, I've only tapped into maybe 1% of this great uh, basement full of slips, and I'm sure there's even more wonderful stuff to be found there. Uh, the title of one of your chapters is The Construction of the Pigeonholes. And this in itself uh, gives us kind of a sense uh, of what you were talking about before, that they did not have any sense of the uh, tremendous scope of this project. Uh, you talk about that first senior editor, Herbert Coleridge, uh, who uh, was on the job only briefly because of his ill health and untimely death. But uh, he constructs 54 pigeonholes into which these slips are going to be placed and uh, before this project is done, uh, 54 pigeonholes, it doesn't begin to be enough. It certainly doesn't. I mean, then, then they reconstructed the pigeonholes and made 1,024, and then there was sort of about 10,000 pigeonholes. I mean, to, go, to, to, to give you an illustration, I mentioned earlier that um, slips relating to one uh, group of letters were found being used to light fires in a farmhouse in Ireland. Well, those slips, were related to words beginning with P-A, like um, pattern or pastiche or um, paleodol or things like that. Well, simply those slips alone ultimately encountered for 354 pages of the dictionary. So there are thousands upon thousands of slips for even relatively obscure uh, groups of letters. So the notion that only 54 pigeonholes would accommodate all the slips was so unimaginably an underestimate. We talked earlier about how those early Shenevix trenches people thought the project might take 10 years and would fill four volumes. Well, it ultimately filled 13 volumes. It took 70 years. And the project isn't over yet by a long chalk. It's, um, one might say that it's been going now for a, well over a, a 150 years. And new edition, which comes out in a couple of years' time, or a few years' time, is going to be 40 volumes. So those early estimates, most notably exemplified by the pigeonholes, were too small by a very long measure. <laughs> it's, of course, an incredibly uh, complicated, even chaotic way, not exactly chaotic, but potentially chaotic, if, if, if the wrong man is at the helm who does not have a gift for uh, bringing order into the midst of all of this, uh, the man who really turns things around so dramatically is someone named James Augustus Henry Murray. And there are some interesting things about him uh, which equipped him well for the job, but which also on the surface uh, might not have equipped him. For instance, he was not a particularly well-educated person uh, 
I mean, in, in the ordinary sense of the word, but brilliant in his own way, of course. You're absolutely right. I mean, he left school at 14. He was the son of a linen draper from the borders of Scotland. He was, had an omnivorous appetite for knowledge of all kinds. Um, he gave his cattle, he was, worked on a farm part-time, Latin names, and he would summon them in Latin, which was sort of interesting, nerdy thing to do. He then joined a bank, um, working very miserably in London in the foreign correspondence department of the bank, but all the time fascinated by language. And he would talk to policemen on railway trains to try and discern from their accents when they came from. And he would write little monographs for himself about oddities of accent and pronunciation and would learn languages. And he had a prodigious talent for languages. And there's a letter I quote for a job um, he applied for a job in the British Museum, a job he failed to get. And he went on and on about the languages he could speak, everything imaginable, Hebrew, Achaemenid, Persian, Sanskrit, uh, Provencal, I mean, all the usual languages, Russian, French, German. It just went on and on and on. And you thought, what an incredible man this is. I mean, a complete polymath. Um, he was a friend of Furnival's. They met in the Philological Society when Murray was a banker, or not uh, working in a bank. He wasn't a banker, he was just a clerk. And when he was a schoolteacher. And eventually Furnival persuaded him, and then eventually persuaded Oxford to take him on as the editor. And then everything changed, because he was supremely well-organized. He was rather fierce, a forbidding sort of figure. He had this huge family who were very, very loyal and helpful to him. And he remained at the helm until 1915. He was hoping that he'd survive, but he died essentially having the written... Well, it's conventionally believed that the last word he defined was the word turned down, someone that's been turned down for a job. But in fact, I think that the last word he defined was the word 20th. Hmm. And I think that's rather appropriate, because although he was a 19th century man, he actually created something which is a very 20th century entity. He came aboard when uh, two million of these slips had been gathered, but so many of them had been lost, or, or we had lo they had lost track of just exactly where they were. You mentioned things like the entire letter H. I mean, all of the slips that would cover the letter H were gone. I think they went to Florence, I think, in the end. <laughs> they found things like um, mice living inside, making a nest of some of the slips that had been put in a basket in someone's... Uh, outbuildings. Yes, it, it, to get all those slips back into order and then realize that he didn't have nearly enough and to uh, ask uh, for a new round of volunteers to produce even more such that we had something like six million slips. Simply to store these slips was a formidable task. Every day the bundles of mail would come in when they moved up to Oxford. He had a house in Oxford which is still there. It's occupied by a very well-known anthropologist, Desmond Morris, today. Um, the post office would make special deliveries. They even put their own mailbox outside the house because of the enormous quantity of mail. That post pillar box, we call them in England, still, still survives today. Um, the mail would come in with thousands of slips every day. The first duty of all these poor children was to sort them out and take them to the scriptorium, this funny little iron hut he built in the garden where all these early lexicographers would work. It was Dickensian kind of work, but eventually, word by word, letter by painful letter, the project advanced. As you said earlier, 
There were many times when it didn't look as if it was going to, and Murray was quite irascible and would often threaten to resign and go and take a very well-paid job here in America because he was now quite famous and offered jobs by universities all over the world. But he stuck to it, and eventually Oxford came to heel and realized that he was onto a good thing and that they would spend whatever it took to make this book. I thought I found odd an odd sort of comfort in uh, in uh, how you described some of these squabbles regarding money and the fact that uh, as this project grew in scope and breadth and complexity and as the timeline clearly was lengthening uh, it was it was becoming more and more obvious that Oxford was not going to make any money off of this uh, at least in the short term at all and uh, and uh, there were all sorts of efforts to try to cut back or cut corners or change the the nature of the project. You know exactly the way that the, that sort of thing would happen today, uh, in terms of cutting corners and uh, and uh, so so in in a sense uh, even even back then in that exalted age of of such uh, such uh, of high education being prized so highly, uh, still it was not uh, a foregone conclusion that a work like this could come into being. No, but bravo to James Murray and to his successor and colleague, Henry Bradley, for resisting these calls. Uh, He said, no, I am only going to work on something which is absolutely excellent. If you want me to start cutting corners just because you want to make money out of this, then forget it, I'm leaving. And the power of his personality was such that... And when they looked at the quality of what he had produced, the early six volumes that Queen Victoria allowed her name to be on the uh, the frontispiece of, I think it was volume six. Then they realized that this had now royal approval, if not patronage, that they were involved in a great national work, and that maybe all the penny-pinching that they were trying to um, bring to bear on Murray, they should abandon it. So Murray said absolutely no, no. Once the Queen had said, okay, this is a worthwhile project, this is a national project, something that the whole country can eventually be proud of, then the pressure was off, and they said, all right, blank check, oh boy, you can do what you like. Somewhat exasperated, because you're quite right, they were not going to make money for many, many years. And In fact, when the dictionary was produced, they hardly sold any copies of it. And um, when the war came, uh, someone suggested using unsold volumes to make an air raid shelter that people could hide from the German bombs. <laughs> But eventually, its reputation was so towering that it did begin to sell, and um, it now, I think, does make money for Oxford. One of the uh, changes which Murray made upon assuming uh, senior editorship was that he uh, not only had to kind of reconvene this army of volunteers and, of course, gather many more, but uh, some of them uh, who had been uh, active in that early reading had neglected ordinary words of the language, maybe misunderstanding the task at hand just uh, a little bit. Uh, he realized that, uh, for instance, in what had been gathered, uh, exotic words, there would be all kinds of attention given, and then very ordinary words all but ignored. And, of course, for a work that sought to be truly comprehensive, it was just as important, maybe even more important, that the ordinary, even banal words of the language uh, be included and given proper attention. You're absolutely right, and in his instructions, to readers written in the um, early 1880s, he made absolutely clear that ordinary words like in and out and but and can and do should be given exactly the same weight in the dictionary as complicated words, you know, like aircraft carrier or contraceptive or whatever. 
So it was difficult at first to persuade the, the readers, who, who, the volunteers, who'd look in a book and their eye would immediately go to the interesting words. If he urged them, if they found an ordinary word in an illustrative sentence, a sentence which showed that the use of the word the was somewhat different. I mean, we say, you know, he was, he was the man. You're using it in a very different sense from, let's go up the stairs, the the man and the stairs. It's two very different senses of the use of the word the. So this kind of thing had to be observed by volunteers, and he, James Murray particularly, brought a lot of pressure to bear on them to see that they would do such a thing. You mentioned two ex- exceptionally interesting uh, Americans who were involved in the reading project. One of them, of course, the subject of an earlier book, this madman mad uh, with the last name of Minor. Uh, you describe another American who was also very active in this, and in, in, indeed, uh, in, in some respects, one of the uh, MVPs, one of the most valuable players on Murray's team. He Tell was, us about he this. He was equally weird, Chapel Fitzedward Hall, who um, was sent out by his father just before he was about to go to university go out on a ship to India to look for his brother, who had gone mysteriously missing. Uh, the ship that um, Fitz Edward Hall was traveling on was shipwrecked out in the Bay of Bengal. He was washed ashore on some tropical beach near Calcutta, decided he rather liked India, um, learned the language, learned Bengali first of all, then Hindi, then Sanskrit, became so much of an adept that he became a teacher at a university in central India married well, the daughter of an English army officer, came to the University of London, started teaching Sanskrit um, to students in London, then had a terrible row with a man called Theodore Goldstucker over some very complicated matter of lexicography, and vowed that he would never, never stay in London again, and he went off in a huff to a cottage in Norfolk in eastern England and didn't emerge for the next 40 years. But every single day would write to James Murray at Oxford with new words and new definitions, new quotations, such that when he died, eventually, without Murray ever once having met him, he was regarded by Murray and the editors of the dictionary as the most valuable player, as you say. But yes, the two, many of the key individuals, W.C. Minor and Fitz Edward Hall, most notably among them, were Americans. You mentioned the fact that... uh... Murray had before him an incredibly difficult task of trying to produce this dictionary in in anything remotely resembling a timely fashion. Uh, At at one point you talk about how he had a personal goal of trying to complete 33 words a day, but he told a friend, sometimes a single word like approve will take three-fourths of a day in, in and of itself. What made this, help us understand what made the assemblage of, of this information and then the setting down of it in, in, in usable form, what made it such a, an incredibly difficult and time-consuming task? I think no one realized the, the, the slipperiness of the language and the way that words had changed so frequently over their, over their existence. I mean, look at the word like sophisticate. Uh, we think of a sophisticate now as someone who's a bit um, sort of well-versed in manners or education, but 50 years ago, sophisticated meant the same as adulterate. You, if you wanted to uh, add sugar to salt in order to bulk out the amount of salt you're trying to sell someone, you, you sophisticated. Well, to discover that 
means a whole new raft of definitions and quotations have to be discovered. This is true for almost every word. Very few words have only one meaning and one sense. And a word like set, S-E-T, I mean, that occupies 62 columns of the dictionary. No one, when they began working on set, had any idea. Yes, there's a set in tennis, the sun sets, a jello set, so you set something down on a table, so there are four definitions off the top of one's head. But to think that you get 62 columns, that wouldn't... No one could, in their wildest dreams, conceive of such things. But the more closely you look at a language, and they looked at it really closely, the more complicated it is. Yes, this, uh, you, you say at one point, defining words is a rare and special art. You also quote Mr. Murray at one point, I think this is actually from the preface of one of the volumes, when he says, it is incredible what labor has had to be expended, sometimes to find out facts for an article which occupies not five or six lines, or even to be able to write the words derivation unknown as the net outcome of hours of research and of testing the statements put forth without hesitation in other works. You, I, I quote at one stage, uh, uh, he, he notes down the number of letters he writes in one day, inquiring uh, all over the world to people on how such and such a word is used and what you write to Walt Whitman to find out what a word in a particular poem of his means. And he'd write to someone in Calcutta about the origin of the word jute for sacking. The amount of research, once again, it just completely beggars belief. Not only the internal exam examination of any one word, but words which are really obscure and which only one or two people in the world may really know anything about. He would have to sit there. Everything, of course, done by longhand, no email, no computers, no typewriters even. Beautiful copperplate script, and of course he had to make a copy of everything he wrote because there was no carbon paper either. And inquire, 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 inquire. So you look into the words and you look into the world for the origin and description and usage of the more obscure words. It's a very, very arduous task. And I, I thought I was, found it was fascinating. I, I love how you you take us into the midst of many, many specific words and the and the the wrestling match that would kind of occur to try to, try to uh, come to grips with a, a complex word. You also mentioned the fact that certain letters of the alphabet would be surprisingly difficult. That, for instance, they all believed that the letter B, all the words that start with B, it would be much simpler than the words that started with the letter A. And in fact, just the opposite was just true. Just the opposite occurred, yes. <laughs> and then words, letters like S, I, they had a hunch that S would be complicated, but that it would occupy two volumes of the dictionary. No one thought that. But you're quite right. B turns out to be the beginning of a lot more complicated words than simply begin with A. So the thing was, as you say, full of surprises. Perhaps the biggest surprise of all, in a sense, is that the Oxford English Dictionary eventually emerges, of course, in sort of piecemeal fashion, as it is completed bit by bit, and then eventually uh, being released in its entirety. Uh, at that point in time, uh, they had to begin work on, on a supplement, because, of, <laughs> as, as, as is the case, of, especially with the English language, uh, that diction, dictionary was already out of date, in a sense, when it first appeared in its complete form in 1928. Yes, I mean, to give you an example, uh, the dictionary came out in April 1928, that's when it was published, but during that time, 1897 to be precise, the Curies had discovered radium. So happens that radium was first used in nature and science 
those two magazines, and so the word actually appears, telling you what it is, the elements that emit rays, which is why it's called radium. And it happened to come out at about the time they were working on the volume that included the letter R. But James Murray was a bit cautious. He said, I'm not sure that this word will last, but it might have a half-life, in other words. But, uh, in fact, it did last, but they didn't include it in the first 12 volumes. So it had to go into this supplement, which was produced in 1933 and included thousands of words that either had been invented during the 70 years the dictionary was being made or had been, for one or another reason, left out. So we had 13 volumes by 1933, and then four more supplements were produced in the 1970s and early 1980s. But this was annoying because it meant now to look up any word, you had to look it up in three distinct books, the 12-volume first edition, the 1933 supplement, or the four additional supplements in the 70s. And so a massive project went underway in the mid-1980s to integrate all of those words together and to produce the second edition. And that came out about 10 years ago, and that's 20 volumes. You begin your book with that dramatic dinner which celebrated the uh, emergence of the complete dictionary. And I especially uh, applaud your decision to quote uh, the words of the Prime Minister of, of England of the day, Stanley Baldwin, when he says, um, Lord Oxford once said that if he were cast on a desert island and could only choose one, one author for company, he would have the 40 volumes of Balzac. I choose the dictionary every time. Like Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, I should pray for the four winds to breathe upon those words that they might emerge and stand upon their feet an exceeding great army. Our histories, our novels, our poems, our plays, they are all in this one book. It's a great speech and uh, entirely true. Where would we be without the English language and how wonderful it is that there's a massive, massive book which encompasses all of it. Uh, it's a joy that it was made, and I had great fun writing about it, I must say. Simon Winchester, his book, The Meaning of Everything, The Story of the Oxford English Dictionary, was published in 2004 by Oxford University Press.